Trust me, I'm like a smart person. From The Conversation, this is Trust Me, I'm an Expert, a podcast where we ask the academic expert to take us behind the news headlines. I'm Sananda Cray. Today we're bringing you a special discussion about the federal election that took place this week at the launch of a book of conversation essays titled Advancing Australia. Recorded at Avid Reader Bookshop in Brisbane this week, the discussion featured Indigenous academic lawyer Eddie Sinnott and political scientist Professor Anne Tiernan, both from Griffith University. Together with Liz Minchin, the executive editor of The Conversation Australia and New Zealand, the panel covered things like what Queensland seats to watch on election night, how to give Indigenous Australians a true voice in politics, and how to improve trust in our political system. I'll let The Conversation's Liz Minchin take it away. Thank you to our friends at Abbott Reader, Griffith Uni and MUP. Um, and tonight we're here to talk about the election and this book uh, of Conversation Essays, Advancing Australia Ideas for a Better Australia. And that last part is really important. That's what it's all about. We want to talk about solutions, not just whinge about politics. So we want to talk about things like how the tax system could be fairer, how to fix schools funding, how to be carbon neutral by 2050, how to give our first Australians a real voice in politics and, in fact, you're going to get to quiz one of the authors of uh, one of the essays, in fact, on that last topic of how to um, give a voice to the first Australians or grant a voice that should have been granted a long time ago. Indigenous academic lawyer Eddie Sinnott here on my right from Griffith University. <laughs> Eddie's currently completing his PhD, which is taking a hard look at the liberal rights discourse of indige- Indigenous recognition. And he's also taught Indigenous Studies. And he's here with a colleague from Griffith, political scientist and Dean of Engagement, Professor Anne Tiernan. Uh, the Ospol junkies in the audience will know Anne for her excellent work explaining Queensland politics for, to the rest of Australia. <laughs> but she's also written a shelf full of books. Are some of them here tonight? I hope so. We'll check afterwards, but you should buy some of those too. Um, and she's worked in and advised Australian governments at all levels, so she knows politics from the inside out. Now, I want to start with Anne. Have you got the mic, Anne? Just grab it and make sure it's on. Um, because she has a pet peeve that I suspect some of you will share. Um, and we hear endlessly about how crucial Queenslanders will be in the election and the contrast between the issues that Victorians care about, like climate change, and the issues that Queenslanders care about. Is there such a thing as a typical Queensland voter? It drives me absolutely insane. And I worry that when I do sort of national broadcasting things and they ask me about that, that my horrendous irritation at such an ignorant and ill-informed question comes through. So I often have to check with my mother whether I've looked really grumpy when I'm kind of (laughs) answering that question. Um, So is there such a thing as a typical Queensland voter? Well, not that anybody in the federal press gallery has ever met or talked to because they actually don't get out often enough. And, you know, we all understand why that's a dilemma. Um, But one of the huge frustrations I have is that this place in my lifetime uh, has doubled in size huge amounts of uh, internal migration, huge amounts of uh, interstate and international migration. So how come uh, views haven't changed? Or how come we're still an eccentricity uh, in, the, in the experience of politics? I think the things that have always counted in Queensland are regions, are the um, tyranny of distance, uh, the fact that Queenslanders well understand that marketisation and those kinds of reforms mean cuts in communities. And I think the other thing that probably does make Queensland voters different is their absolute commitment to integrity and accountability. Um, and, you know, I'm fascinated by the lack of a federal ICAC. I'm fascinated about, you know, that this tired debate still about, you know, oh, corruption in Queensland politics, oh, Queensland is different. Well, yes, actually, because you'd might find out um, if, if something happens. So, so I think there's, I think we're ill understood. Do we carry it as a badge of honour? Probably. Um, but, but did many of the people who've come from other places come to similar views or concerned views about employment in places that have been left behind? Have they come to views about actually do people in Brisbane understand my concern when I'm in Mackay or I'm in Townsville or whatever? These are not illegitimate kind of concerns. Um, But I do get very frustrated um, as you can tell and it's probably coming out now. 
Uh, I also wanted to ask about um, one of the other things I've heard is the slightly more sophisticated version of a typical Queensland voter is the idea of a Brisbane line, that there are issues that people north of southeast Queensland care about. And again, it's sort of southeast Queensland being this blob of people and then everyone else in the rest of Queensland being another blob of people who have the same views on all the same things. Do you think, is there actually any truth in it? Is it broadly Queensland, Sydney, Melbourne are very, very similar? Or do you think it's, again, more complicated? No, of course, it's infinitely more complicated than that. And the whole debate about the southeast is in itself incredibly interesting. And the extraordinary growth that we're experiencing in parts of southeast Queensland, the extraordinary diversity of it. So we've done uh, some work at Griffith. We've built a sort of an election dashboard to have a look at, you know, those demographic features of what's going on. The incredible diversity in electorates like Dawson, you know, the, the it's actually not a huge mining electorate. You know, there's, yes, there's lots of people who work in mining, but it's actually huge numbers of people who work in other sectors, uh, community services, health, education. So part of our effort is in an effort to, to get people to understand. The Brisbane line, though, there is an interesting kind of psychological overhang from the war that I was trying to explain to Richard Aidy from Radio National earlier in the week <laughs> to sort of say, who had absolutely no understanding that many people of my parents' generation were evacuated out of Brisbane or were so there actually is something about being exposed being um, you know the fear of exogenous kind of shocks or risks natural disasters There's actually a whole lot of things about living here that do impact incredibly on people so I, I think there is an interesting kind of administrative and cultural history that we'd be silly not to take account of um, but it's interesting to me how that's transmitted and socialized to people who haven't been here that long something for us to think about. So www.griffith.edu.au slash election um, and you can look at the 30 seats in Queensland. You can look at all the demographic kind of uh, issues and we're trying to link it to election commitments as those are happening too. Any data that we can ingest from any of our researchers or other people we're just making available because we're really concerned about people being informed um, and, and being able to make judgments about the issues that are going on in their own communities. Um, and I do actually encourage you to have a look at that because I had a quick look a few weeks ago at it and it's quite interesting. You can actually get a much better sense of the the seats than even you can get from a lot of news sites uh, what are your tips for so election night is really not very far away for anyone here but also people listening to the podcast too what are your tips for the queensland seats to watch we always do a top 10 seats to watch um, so i think all the ones that you know are on very slim margins we know dawson capricornia well actually dawson's on a bigger one but capricornia herbert the ones that are on quite small margins um, that labor's been targeting in the north and the center um, uh, obviously in the southeast, seats like Ford um, that are on very wafer-thin margins um, that are held by the LNP. Uh, uh, you know, I think some of the others that we think might be in contention are potentially Brisbane. Um, but, you know, well, we've got Griffith in the list too. It could go either way depending on how superannuation uh, and, and tax and some of those other issues go. Our wildcard seat this time is Ryan because I've had a theory for a long time that women and young people are really going to count in this election. And I think the, obviously, you know, Dixon, you can take it as red that that's on 1.7, Petrie, there's a whole variety of them. But the wild card that we've got and we're watching really closely is Ryan. I think that's a real sleeper in terms of people's rage um, about the treatment of an incumbent candidate and probably none of that has been um, improved. Or certainly anybody I talk when I've got my big ears waving in the seat of Ryan is talking about that. Eddie, let's have a talk about um, your comment conversation essay which is in the book uh, the Uluru statement showed how to give First Nations people a real voice now it's time for action uh, you write indigenous affairs decisions are too often reactionary and crisis focused significant resources are distributed without evidence and without indigenous oversight and evaluation moving from crisis to crisis non-indigenous actors make key pol policy decisions and you end by saying indigenous Australians have provided important leadership by issuing the Uluru statement from the heart it's up to all Australians, regardless of political persuasion, to accept the invitation and to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. So let's forget the politicians for a minute, maybe longer. Uh, how can ordinary non-Indigenous Australians take you up on that invitation? Where do we start? Uh, thank you. And I guess how long do we have to give you all of the you know, many different things that uh, you could be doing? But I think there's a fundamental kind of principle that Uluru is about and um, that I think has kind of come through in the process that Uluru has kind of developed. And it's about speaking and being heard and being able to have those conversations in Australian community, but you know, more so outside of the, the politicians, the politics, the people that are kind of been controlling that historically. So Uluru 
came about after kind of last 10, or after the last kind of decade of a lot of different politicians and groups through um, uh, select committee reports and stuff like that, telling Indigenous people that the conventional wisdom uh, was this and that, and this is what the Australian people would be willing to accept or what would succeed at a referendum, uh, telling us as Indigenous people what our issues were and what we need to be addressing and refusing not to hear us. Um, but then a lot of Indigenous people and kind of key leaders along the way, but importantly community, refusing to accept that and pushing through and really saying, no, this is what we want, um, this is what we want to talk about. And so Uluru in that important aspect was addressed to the Australian people, not to politicians, not to Malcolm Turnbull, not to Bill Shorten at the time, whoever it was. And there is that important aspect on being able to have that conversation. Um, so the biggest thing for me, there are a lot of you know material things that people can get involved in and do. Um, one of those pay the rent kind of campaign that's become a lot more prominent um, over the last couple of years. But the biggest one for me is we're all members of our own communities, uh, myself, whether it's in the classroom with my students, with my colleagues here tonight, talking to you all, um, whoever reads what I write, if you, you know, wasting your time online or, or whatever it is. But having those conversations kind of expands out further and being able to talk about what it means and why it's important. Um, so for me, the biggest thing is just picking that up um, not kind of expecting that it is just an Indigenous issue or it's an issue for politicians or policy experts. It's an issue for all Australians. It goes uh, to the very heart of who we are as a nation and as a community. And I think, you know, the most important thing is picking that up and taking the responsibility for that and driving that forward. Just picking up on that, obviously, I would encourage all of you to follow the conversation and the stuff that we publish, including from excellent um, Indigenous academics. But um, another uh, avenue that I definitely would encourage you to all to check out is Indigenous X, that is Indigenous run, Indigenous authored, um, and you'll see stuff on there that you really won't see in other places. And the nice thing is you know that it's actually very much steered by the Indigenous authors themselves. Um, so do check that out on Twitter, Facebook. They've got their own website. You can be a patron for it as well. Um, so that's a fantastic way to support independent media in this country too. Um, Eddie, how would you – we know that uh, from past experience that you can easily stuff up a referendum if you want to by framing it the wrong way, by using confusing language. If you want this one to succeed and we, <laughs> we want this one to succeed, how would you frame it in a way that you think people could actually um, – it wouldn't confuse voters or it couldn't be tripped up in, along the way? How would you frame it? So – uh, one of the main kind of comparisons that's made is to the 1967 referendum for very obvious reasons, uh, removing the words other than um, the Aboriginal race from what's known as the race power so that the Commonwealth could legislate for Indigenous people. But one of the successes, and even though it is kind of looking back retrospectively at that, was about the principle of what that reform stood for. So a lot of the posters at the time, if you look at it, it was about saying yes for Aborigines. It wasn't saying, should we remove this technical detail from the Constitution so the Commonwealth Government can technically do this. It wasn't setting out in detail what the Department of Aboriginal Affairs or the National Aboriginal Consultative Committee or any of that kind of stuff would be into the future. It was about the principle of the matter at hand. And you'll hear a lot of people, a lot of lawyers, um, I talk to a lot of them, a lot of them ignore me, about what the conventional wisdom is, again, about what a constitution is, what it represents. It's a technical legal document. It shouldn't have all of these things. Uh, but it fundamentally is a representation of, you know, the social and political will of the community as well. It was written on that basis. It was produced on that basis. Uh, so for me, the very simple question that should be put to the Australian people, and then obviously there's the technical detail with the legislation and stuff that comes along after that, but it's do you support a First Nations voice in the Australian constitution? Yes or no? And then underneath that, there would be what that insertion would actually be. It doesn't have to be detailed. The Constitution is not the place to put all that detail. It's just the mechanism for that power to be there, for the Commonwealth to do something, but also recognition of the principle that you know goes to the very heart of the issue. So do you support a First Nations voice in the Australian Constitution? Yes or no? Regardless of who wins this election, how far off do you think we are from that happening? And hopefully with that wording. But do you think that we're going to see that in the next term in the next couple of terms because it keeps being delayed obviously is the history i keep being told to suspend my disbelief and i've now taken that aboard and i keep telling other people to do that as well so suspend your disbelief in politicians and politics uh, labor uh, after the coalition government rejected the uluru statement kind of outright without engaging with it. labor equivocated as well uh, we've now been able to get them on board to agree to a referendum on this issue in their first term of parliament. 
Uh, that's something that they've put into their policy platform now that changed at the election, uh, sorry, at the uh, national conference. And it's something that the coalition is slowly starting to come around to as well. So they've started to equivocate on, they need much more detail around uh, what it will actually mean and how it would be detailed and how it would played out. Uh, but actually set aside some funding in the budget to be able to go ahead with that process. Uh, I guess I'm hoping they don't try and bog us down in another 10 years of reports and whatnot, um, and that they actually exercise the political leadership that we need. And I think the public has kind of outstripped or outgrown the politicians on this issue with a lot of other issues too. Um, but the time is ready, you know, we're ready for it now. Um, so if it's Labor, we, we've got that commitment from them. I've been telling a lot of Labor politicians recently that I don't want to see another video with Bob Hawke crying about not achieving a treaty or Bill Shorten doing that in 10 years' time either. Um, it's time to kind of pay the debts or pay the checks in a way to put it you know, bluntly like that. But there is a lot of political will there. They've committed to it. And I think the coalition is coming around to it as well. Um, so a lot will depend on what that looks like following the election, obviously, with all of it. But I think there is a kind of mass movement there that's coming up. Eddie, this is probably a question for you, but it could be for both of you, actually. But one of the things that struck me um, in the wake, to be honest, the most moving thing in the wake of the, the terrible Christchurch terrorist attacks was how deeply embedded Maori culture and language was in the national response there. So you saw spontaneous hakas and you saw kiakahas, just everyone saying it. And I couldn't help thinking if that same thing had happened here in Australia, and not that it's as simple because there are lots of languages and, you know, I'm not trying to simplify it in that sense, but... It was such a, a fundamental part of the way that New Zealand responded to it and, and I couldn't help thinking that wouldn't happen here. Um, and, in fact, we just recently, uh, only a few, I think about a week ago, um, the Australian Mint launched a new 50-cent piece. And this is a good news story, but it's a 50-cent piece with 14 different Indigenous words for money and it's a fantastic um, history and explainer of that and the conversation written by a UQ expert who was involved in that process. So do look that up, 14 words in uh, Indigenous languages for money and um, and it explains that. And we'll try and tweet that out as well with tonight's event. Um, so do read that one. But I couldn't help thinking such a massive national response and here we are celebrating the fact that we've got a 50 cent piece with a few words on it. So how do we get to that point? Is there, Do you see something that New Zealand has done... Uh, I mean, obviously, there's a million things, but is there a starting point for embedding um, greater cultures and languages into Australian day-to-day -day life so that if something terrible happens, we wouldn't just be responding in English, we'd be responding in all of the languages that make up our country, all of the first languages? Yeah, it was very, um, I guess, moving and talking to a lot of other Aboriginal people about watching what was happening in Christchurch and seeing the Maori response to that. Um, there's a kind of, I've been saying to a lot of people, it's not that Indigenous people or people of colour have a monopoly on violence or trauma, but that particular kind of uh, violence and hatred around race and your kind of existence. So everything that you are is kind of dismissed as, as being important. So as um, we, like here, and my colleagues I was talking to, we didn't really know what to think or how to express it and thinking about how that would play out here. Even other kind of national events you see, like Anzac Day, um, there's the Maori language that's front and centre of that as opposed to, you know, when it's at Gallipoli and all those other kind of things. Um, but I think we should understand also that New Zealand's had a very difficult history with that as well and it's not like they've just woken up and they're kind of reconciled and um, there are some important differences with the Treaty of Waitangi and the, the kind of at least that minimal recognition of uh, Indigenous existence and their rights, which we don't have here. So it's been one of the hardest things in the conversation about Uluru and, and change in the constitution is getting a lot of people just to recognise that we have these rights and that we exist and we have these things. Um, Australia has an interesting role in that history as well. Uh, it was Governor Gipps in the 1830s and Lord Glenelg from the Colonial Office were talking to each other, regretting about what had happened here in New South Wales and saying that they wanted to make sure that they signed a treaty with New Zealand when they're going ahead. So you know, our histories are very much intertwined in that kind of notion. In uh, New Zealand also there was a push in the early 1900s to use Maori identity as a, for non-Indigenous people to try and get this collective kind of idea. But it wasn't until like the 80s and the 90s that there was a real big kind of movement around policy and reconciliation and what that actually meant there um, that was hard fought that you know, ends up with some of the kind of things that we see today in New Zealand. So I think um, we're getting there slowly. 
as always with these kind of things, we're kind of 20 or 30 years behind a lot of other people. Uh, when I travelled to Canada and met with a lot of First Nations people there, it was a similar kind of experience of kind of seeing where they were at with some of this stuff um, and, you know, not dismissing some of those negatives that they've had to deal with as well. But I think the idea of voice, treaty and truth that came out of Uluru, um, being able to address that kind of foundational issue that is at the heart of the Australian nation about um, not what happened, but about who we actually are and where Indigenous people fit. I think that will go a long way to actually being able to, what I talk about, changing the culture of power and decision-making, not around policy, but just more so broadly about who we are and where we fit and being able to build that relationship into the future. You know, it's such an interesting point that you make, Eddie. Uh, you know, New Zealand did have great struggles with these issues in the, in the 80s and 90s. So what changed? Well, we had generational change when Piggy Muldoon shuffled off and then they changed their electoral system um, and so the composition of the parliament is infinitely more diverse and the political culture is not as vicious uh, as ours is and lots of people so I think have been impressed by leadership obviously that Jacinda Ardern has shown but there's actually something about the the composition that the electoral system delivers and how hard it is to get a majority that makes people more respectful of each other. Um, even in a unitary parliament. So I think it's really important for us to think about the potential of electoral reform um, to provide that kind of circuit breaker and there's a generational dimension to it also, um, which you know, one would be very interesting to explore on the 19th of May. Uh, just to add on that, actually, one of my favourite things about having a New Zealand editor, we only had a New Zealand editor with the conversation for the past couple of years, but has been learning through her and through hearing more from New Zealand academics. We had we published some fantastic pieces on the Treaty of Waitangi and even the fact that in the, even though they had the treaty, there, there were different understandings of it, and I'm not going to do this justice, but do, do look it up, the Treaty of Waitangi in the conversation for a, a couple of really fantastic explainers. But one of them was actually by a legal expert explaining the fact that the Maori understanding of it was much more conservative in terms of, well, of course, you know, you might, we might agree that we have the same king, or I'm trying to remember the wording, but of course we maintain our sovereignty and of course you're not over the top of us. The white understanding of it was, well, of course we're British and we rule. So, of course, but legally... Um, and this was, I, was fantastic. Um, legally, when two parties in a contract have different understandings, the more conservative understanding actually wins. So even that in terms of the Treaty of Waitangi was really interesting that, that we have this um, supposedly shared document but those two different – anyway, it's fascinating. Um, do, but do read – if you're interested in anything to do with New Zealand politics and even some of these issues um, and anything coming out of Christchurch, we've published some really fantastic stuff. Um, now, this is my last question to Anne and Eddie, so I hope you're ready to take over this uh, after this. In the intro to this book, Advancing Australia, our chief political correspondent, Michelle Grattan, wrote about Australia's trust deficit and how this election – is being fought in a climate of unprecedented public distrust of politics and cynicism about its practitioners. And Michelle writes, Australians are over their politicians. All the stridency, the bad behaviour, the lying, the relentless campaigning, the judgement by opinion poll and the media shrillness have taken their toll on the tolerance of the average voter. Now, Michelle Grattan, who I've worked with for a long time, the age before this and now the conversation, she's covering her 19th federal election. So when a veteran like her damns our political process so strongly, and she she's very cautious in her words, but when someone like her damns it so strongly, you know we're in trouble. So we could end on a negative, but I actually do want to end on a positive. Anne and Eddie, before we go to the other questions, let's try and offer some hope. If you could give one piece of advice to the next government on how to improve Australians' trust in the political system, what would it be? Or, or if that's too hard... Can you point to any examples of community political leadership that we could all be supporting? I sit on the board of the Museum of Australian Democracy at Old Parliament House. It's one of my favourite things um, in the work that I do. Uh, and we're following very closely this extraordinary trust deficit. It's there in the data. Um, if Responding to your question, Liz, I would not give advice to politicians because we've proven empirically that they're incapable of learning. And I've written about this... Um, in, uh, in a part, the partisan class actually finds it impossible to learn. I've written about this in Griffith Review, uh, fixing the system, which there might be a few copies of inside. So I'd give advice to citizens. I'd give advice to people in our community. Um, we had a mostly, with the significant exception of you know the way Indigenous people were treated, we had a very vibrant, innovative, internationally recognised democracy that was built on 
alliances, collaborations. If you've read Claire Wright's book, you know this about in terms of the alliances that were built between women and federationists and people who respected each other and built um, arrangements across boundaries, sectors, genders, all sorts of things. That would be my challenge to people. Active citizenship is what we need to exercise on the 18th of May. It's what we need to exercise every day. We get what we deserve in terms of um, on people's preparedness to kind of step in. Um, we've done it before. It's a very resilient democracy. We're at a nadir right now. We keep thinking we are, but maybe it can go worse. Um, you know, there's another five weeks to go. Um, <laughs> but I, I wouldn't offer advice to governments. I think it's actually in... There needs to be a consequence. There needs to be a consequence for recklessness, negativity, viciousness and unpleasantness on an epic scale and also of really bad policy. It's triggered something in my mind as well and then I guess the idea of active citizenship. The, uh, it's very hard, you know, a lot of the stuff I focus on, law reform or community development work in Indigenous communities when you're dealing with people that are already um, downtrodden I guess to use a you know poor descriptor but to try and tell them to suspend your disbelief and to keep going. Um, we're constantly going cap in hand to government or to Prime Minister and Cabinet or to Indigenous Business Australia. We've done all the research, we do everything and they don't listen or they don't learn. Um, but the biggest, I guess, changes or the benefits I've seen have come from communities organising themselves, um, building networks with others and being able to develop that strength and making it so much to the point where governments can't say no or they can't ignore that anymore. Uh, it's a lot of work. It's tiring and it, it takes a lot, but um, I think it produces the most long-lasting change as well. Can you think of any examples off the top of your head? And I'm, I'm putting you on the spot, but can you think of an example like that here in southeast Queensland that people should know about? Uh, not southeast Queensland, <laughs> off the top of my head. Uh, there was one that I was reading about today in a Western Australian community um, about an Aboriginal council that's um, all females on, on the board of the council. They got together with the police and the other community services that were there concerned about um, all the kind of things you hear about happening in some of these communities. Um, so over the last two years through their actions and what they've been doing, crime rates are down 60%, school attendance back up, all these different things the government likes to use as kind of arbitrary measures of Indigenous success and all that. And that's all come off the back of the community um, saying enough's enough, we're going to do this for ourselves, the government's not helping us, these other people aren't helping us. And sometimes too, going to those people that can be on the other end, such as police, community health workers, other people like that, um, and being able to have the difficult conversations with those peoples about the relationships and about what they can be doing better as well. Because there actually are lots of examples of communities taking matters into their own hands and exercising their own inherent capacities, and I think we see that in lots of parts of Queensland and, and in Indigenous policy and in lots of other areas. But uh, the point you make, Eddie, about police, um, you know, who were so distrusted in this state for, you know, good reasons 30 years ago, um, but, but in that data, about who are the most trusted people in our community. They're the frontline workers uh, in the 80s and 90s, even for the police. So I always think that that is an optimistic kind of foundation on which to build um, those local partnerships, local alliances in places, you know, and so on. And I think we've got a great tradition of that in this state and we should certainly be um, remembering that um, and that capacity for self-organisation. That's great. Thank you. Now, I'm going to run around the audience with this mic and ask questions. And uh, please do keep the questions short. If we can and if the audio quality is okay, we'll include these in the podcast, but we'll just see how we go. Thank you. Thank you very much for the great questions and comments. Um, my question refers to the earlier question about the New Zealand pride in Maori culture and particularly the use of the haka. And I'm wondering what Australia can learn from this. And I think to that, to me, particularly in this age of um, a much stronger public awareness of cultural appropriation is kind of also really important. And I'm, my question is, how can non-Indigenous Australians sensitively help make Indigenous culture become a focal point of Australian pride and the Australian face to the world? Thank you. Um, brilliant question. I, you know, it's a bit of a one of the space where Indigenous people, I guess, have historically been allowed to excel is the sporting field <laughs> to a certain extent. Um, but I can't tell you how wonderful it is to see the All-Stars game in the NRL and to see the war dance and uh, Latrell Mitchell standing up in the middle. Um, just the, the pride, the joy, the um, understanding of everything else that's still going on. Um, so to be able to see that included and become such a you know, front centre. And, and this year, um, going up against the New Zealand team as well, so having the haka, having the war dance, having those kind of things play out. Uh, when it comes to... I've been working in the space of kind of indigenising curriculum lately. 
uh, which is kind of a dead term in its own, <laughs> own right um, because so many people do it in ways that aren't respectful or aren't insightful. And um, one of the first things we did was establish a First Nations reference uh, committee at the university. Um, but there are always resources and people available. And going back to my first point about being able to have the conversation and reaching out and doing that. And, um, you know, sometimes it, it might be a little bit difficult, but you're never going to get your head chewed off for at least reaching out and saying, hey, um, can I do this? How can we, you know, approach this? It's the kind of siloing off and not having those conversations. So when I started doing the Indigenous curriculum kind of stuff, um, my boss was like, all right, I'm going to step out of this now. You guys do that. And I said, no, if we're going to do this, you're with us the whole way. You have to own it as well. It's not just, you know, letting the Indigenous people do the Indigenous stuff. It's part of that shared responsibility that I was talking about at the beginning. And that can still be part of a, um, you know, shared, respectful, responsible conversation as well. Uh, thank you. Very, very interesting. Um, since we are now, again, very much a nation of immigrants and the nature of immigration has changed significantly, Many of those of us in the immigrant community who came here recently did not come here with a, a cultural expectation of what Aboriginal relations should be. And I'm wondering if there's evidence for a demographic shift in the way immigrant populations think about these issues that's different from the way we've thought about these issues historically here. Uh, I don't know if there is evidence about how the changing um, kind of ideas from immigrant populations, how that's worked out. Uh, but I do know in our history and, and some of the earlier kind of history that I research um, that the immigrant or the multicultural nature um, of others coming to Australia has been able to interact with Aboriginal people, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people, um, a lot more than the kind of Anglo-British <laughs> settlers in that history as well. And it's been a big part of the sense of community and um, building those responsible relationships moving forward. So like in other places around the world, especially North America, there's a history of the relations between immigrant populations, especially you know, a good friend of mine, the Sara family, Italian background, Aboriginal background as well, linking in. But also in the North, Aboriginal people have had multicultural relationships for a very long time with immigrant populations. So. I guess, you know, very broadly, uh, no, I don't, <laughs> I, I don't know if there is an evidence base, but I'd be very interested to find out. But I do know there is a strong history of those relations in that space. It's possible that in the Australian election study that's been running since the 1960s and is run from the ANU, that there is. They certainly have done research on attitudes to democracy among different uh, ethnic groups um, and more recent arrivals from China and places like that are, you know, extraordinary supporters of democratic practices and actually were very active in the 1850s and in federation too, the Chinese, interesting to, to sort of learn. They got a bit gypped by the White Australia policy too. But quite, you know, so it may well be in the subsets of the Australian election study uh, and that's been running for a very long time. Thank you both so much for this, uh, for your comments about this important topic, about how to make Australia better, really. Um, I'm actually running as an independent for a Queensland Senate seat and the reason I'm doing that is I can't sit back as a mental health professional and sociologist any longer and see the inhumanity and a lack of compassion uh, that is spilling out from our government and particularly in relation to asylum, those seeking asylum in our country and people suffering in the welfare system. Do you believe, both of you, that there, there is this real lack of humanity and compassion that is in our government at the moment and people are ready to see something that is a lot more compassionate? I think people are really responding to independents who uh, step up and put themselves forward and get in and we've seen that with Cathy McGowan and Indi and we've seen the reaction to the disaffected Liberal women who suddenly discovered that it wasn't fair and went to the kind of crossbench. Um, so I think people are ready for a different kind of politics, one that's less visible one that's less personal, one that's less removed from the everyday experiences. So I think it's cool that you've put yourself forward uh, and I hope it goes well. Yeah, thank you. Very important, especially the um, first kind of issues you mentioned as well about mental health and uh, the kind of dehumanising nature of some of the policy decisions, but more so the rhetoric well, you know, the policies related to that as well, but, you know, a recent announcement by the government for more funding in mental health, but then the rhetoric about gender whispers in schools and, and all that kind of stuff. So there seems to be, you know, still that heightened political scoring around some of those ideological points around those things from, from all sides. And I think, you know, like I was saying before, I think the public kind of mass has gotten beyond that 
We majoritively want action on climate change, different policies on asylum seekers, better health systems, all those kinds of things. So hopefully people like yourself will be able to put a dent in the majority position where they stand and be able to manoeuvre some of those things. I think we saw, although there were a lot of other issues playing out with Dr Karen Phelps' election, but the ability to be able to get through that legislation around asylum seekers that hadn't been there before and the position the government found themselves in as well. So hopefully we'll be able to see more of that into the future. And I, I know you said that um, we get what we deserve, but on May 18th I'm going to end up getting a politician. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, all that aside, there's a bleak picture being painted about our, our federal politicians and I'm just wondering if you see a role for the other two tiers of, uh, of politics to actually get involved and maybe sway the sentiment, um, a bit of pushing from the, the ground taking that um, citizen voice forward for us? Sure. Look, I mean, I think it is... And, you know, it's not only me who says it. John Howard and Bob Hawke and many people have lamented the, you know, the rise of the career politician. I, um, you know, have followed this closely in my own research and it doesn't mean that people aren't smart and it doesn't mean that people aren't meritorious sometimes, although, you know, um, <laughs> you know, clearly not the numbers in the cabinet, it has to be said, but um, so we get, we're ruled by the people who turn up and I think that Tony Windsor made that point really well and so many of us can't think of anything worse than turning up. Um, but, but people are turning up uh, in, in better numbers Certainly, you know, whoever thought that Queensland would have um, a majority of women in the Cabinet? Who thought that we'd have two Premiers? You know, New South Wales took a really long time. So I think there can be um, that effect. Um, when was the last time, with the exception of Pam Parker in Logan, that there was a female mayor in southeast Queensland? Whereas, uh, you know, local government is supposed to be the tier that's more, well, it's clearly more engaged with, directly with people and also, you know, less unfriendly uh, in a family and sort of normal life sense um, than the federal parliament is. I think there's a bunch of things we could be doing um, in the federal parliament to make it a less pathological kind of place. Um, and clearly more diversity would be the first place to start. And not just in gender terms. I think just people with normal lives have done things before. And a political science question perhaps. I'm not convinced our Westminster system is doing its job and I think it's corrupted by power, money and the voting system in general because it's all weighted towards those who wave enough money and power and influence around. Is it time for us to seriously think about a different democracy and a democratic system in the country? maybe a people's council of like a jury system that advise a management team to run the country. <laughs> Is there a different model that we should be heading towards to get away from this basically corrupted process we use at the moment? Despite the fact my wife's trying to get a seat in the Senate. <laughs> uh, so let me preface my remarks by saying that Westminster is one of the most used, abused, misunderstood concepts in political science. Um, a, an excellent colleague of mine from Griffith, sadly now at University of Cambridge, which is good for the UK but sad for us, Dennis Groob has written some fantastic stuff about how Australia arguably never was a Westminster-style system. Um, so I think we need to be careful about the different elements that we're talking about. Um, I think uh, there's a lot to learn from Queensland in terms of real-time donations. Uh, reform. I think there's been a lot. I think there's a lot to learn about integrity and accountability. Uh, I think there's quite a lot to learn about uh, making transparent uh, diaries and who's meeting with whom. And I think there's that there's a view in Canberra that that this is a special type of system, special type of public service. There'd never be any corruption there. What are you talking about? That only happens in the provinces. Um, so I think it will be very healthy when we see those things normalised across other tiers of government. I clearly think that there are big issues about... Um, uh, I don't think anybody needs to pay anybody to get a meeting with a minister. You actually just need to be persistent and get onto the right staffer who answers the phone, right? You just have to understand how the system works. So I think we just need to be careful not to conflate different elements. Um, our system has served us really well. Um, we've had bad times before. Um, and it often happens after an economic shock and when the ideas run out. This is where we are. I don't see the hero leader coming. Um, they're not coming. Um, and maybe they never did. Uh, but I think it needs to be much more collective now. And you're right, majoritarian politics of the kind that the Westminster model kind of or responsible government uh, enshrines maybe is not contemporary. Um, but we could achieve a lot of those things through electoral reform, um, which is a lot easier to do, really, frankly, than to, you know, 
change the constitution or to do to do lots of other things. So I think I think we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, but we actually need to be much better informed about our civic responsibilities and how our institutions work. There's been epic disrespect for our institutions. I've written about this too. It just blows my mind, the lack of political consequence for the abuse of conventions. So I think that's something that as citizens we really need to take hold of. Just following, I guess, the lack of consequences or, you know, that kind of process. Uh, federal ICAC, I really just can't understand why we haven't got there already and why it's not there. And I think there are some pretty obvious answers to, to, to that. Um, but one of the biggest things I see in Indigenous affairs um, is the lack of consequences and some of it's blatant corruption, uh, some of it's not, some of it's, you know, blind ignorance and the lack of knowledge and awareness. Uh, but, you know, it's the communities that we're working with, that, that I work with, um, basics, trying to get the food stocked into the stores and stuff like that, and you've got these Commonwealth government agencies, millions and millions of dollars doing what they want, running roughshod over um, people's ability to live, basically, and getting away with it. And... Uh, that, for me, reflects right up through all the kind of things you were talking about and the respect for institutions, the lack of accountability and the lack of transparency and awareness. So even in things, the Indigenous Advancement Strategy, which has been the main kind of uh, policy platform you can apply for funding over the last, since the Abbott government, uh, there's no right of reply or access to reasons for decisions or anything. No transparency, absolutely nothing. They can make the decision, they can tell you, that's it. They don't even have to give you, you know, that if they want to give you a short explanation, they can. And I've been back and forwards with a couple of Commonwealth officers and they realise, you know, my email said so they don't want to put it in writing anymore and they say, I'll give you a call and we'll talk about it. I'm like, no, I want it in writing so I can find out what's happening. But they, the legislation is set up in the way that they don't have to be transparent, they don't have to tell you why, they don't have to give reasons. Uh, that itself, for me is one of the immediate things that we can impact. And then if that leads to electoral reform and some of those other bigger processes, then so be it. And many of these things are about habits and cultures. And it's something about, remember the Commonwealth began as a unified system. And it didn't have those kind of complex prehistories of colonial times being a second offender colony, all those kinds of things that explain lots of things about Queensland. But, there, you know, those things you've been talking about, Eddie, aren't about politicians at all. That's actually about the public service and about administration. Um, and actually Arthur Tang, the great Mandarin, um, you know, warned about this, warned about what would happen when people didn't come from, you know, state and territory and local governments to work in Commonwealth administration. It's not a criticism of the individuals who work there. It's a, it was never intended that people would spend long periods of time in Canberra, that it would be more porous, people would move around, they'd come from other places. And I think the further you get away, to your point, you know, it's why the Federation is actually still a good model. I know, not popular. Not popular, I'm the only Federationist in the room probably. Um, but it has stopped a lot of stupidity and bad policy. Uh, over the years. It's also, you know, had some other consequences too. But I, I really do think habits and cultures is a lot of what we're talking about too. Um, I think, you know, notwithstanding the many um, shortcomings of public administration here, um, people do understand that they'll have to account for it. People do understand that they're going to have to explain what they do. Um, and I think there's some very interesting kind of questions from an incoming government in terms of what it does with the review of the Australian Public Service that Malcolm initiated before he got the shaft. Um, so, you know, very interesting to see what, what that attitude is because not all of it's about politician. Thank you very much. Um, my question is around the statement from the heart, obviously the Uluru statement from the heart, and the fact that NAIDOC has adopted Voice Treaty Truth. Do you believe that that would be a worthwhile platform to get behind groundswell change to hopefully maybe change referendum next year? Yes, definitely. Voice Treaty Truth is, is where it's at. It's what it's about. It's what the Uluru statement from the heart specifically address. Um, all the elements are in there. The voice is about the structural reform that we need in you know our laws, our policies, the kind of community who we are. Um, the truth-telling part is about telling the truth of our shared histories, not just dismissing Indigenous experiences and other non-Indigenous experiences as well. And the treaty or the, the agreement, the Makarata stuff, um, is also important about building the foundations for, for that um, relationship into the future as well. Um, so NAIDOC will be a perfect opportunity this year uh, to be able to celebrate and to discuss that and have those discussions. I think I'm already doing a speech nearly every day at different <laughs> events during NAIDOC week. Um, so there will be a lot going on and I encourage you all to, to get involved and be a part of it. Uh, hi, just on the, um, on the comment on the ideas having run out, 
Um, I suppose my question comes from the point of view, in the face of the constant bombardment of political platforms being based on the development or the creation of jobs, jobs, jobs everywhere, and there is, uh, I know, research which is done of um, um, the rise of what's been eloquently named bullshit jobs by the anthropologist David Graeber, and then the, the rise of automation coming into our society and these being linked up. And then floating the concepts of things like universal basic income or having different um, views in relation to economic models, particularly um, I'm interested these days in modern monetary theory. Um, what place do you see ideas like this having in the Australian society and Australian political rhetoric going into the future? Well, it's a great question and it's a really important one. Um, this idea of the ideas regime having run out is one that uh, some colleagues who wrote this great book, two books, um, about the history of the Prime Ministership that's been totally under... Uh, read this book. The second one is called by some colleagues um, from Monash, uh, Paul Strangio and um, Jim Walter and another colleague, um, Paul DeHart. And uh, it, the second book is called The Pivot of Power. And, it, and the final chapter is really reflecting on this, you know, this chaos of the last 10 years and it was before poor old Malcolm got the, you know... <laughs> move on um, and they sort of said this has happened before taking the long view that that we've seen four prime ministers in short period of time in the past we saw it in the decade post-federation we saw it in the 1930s we saw it in the 1960s and they argue that it follows a disruption I think it's a very compelling thesis to be honest um, they you know it follows an economic shock it follows um, the, the ideas regime running out. So their kind of thesis now is, look, you know, Keynesianism kind of, you know, was running to an end. We, we came into sort of neoliberalism, whatever. Now that idea has run out uh, in, in many ways, you know, people argue. So what's the idea that's going to replace it? And some of what you're alluding to are some of this new economic thinking. One of the things I worry about in terms of the economic thinking and where it's going to come from is that universities aren't the places that they used to be be in terms of the capacity for some of that original thinking on whatever side of politics that you came from. There's something about the space and the lack of space for ideas. And, you know, even though we love the avid reader and we'd love to be here all the time, don't you get anxiety about all the books you haven't read and all the things you haven't learned and all of, you know, the, the things that you need to know about, about the Green New Deal and inclusive growth and all these kinds of concepts. So I worry about where's the place for ideas? Where's the place for involving people in ideas? And frankly, the people who are providing advice and analysis or are trying to, you know, develop policy platforms, scarcity, the scarcity of time and kind of intellectual bandwidth is, a, is an existential risk, I think. Um, so I think there's lots of interesting ideas around. I keep waiting for economics to reform itself and come up with. Um, but, of course, it lacks fundamental diversity as well. Thanks very much. Uh, I wanted to pick up on your question about active citizenry. Um, being an active citizen myself, if not somewhat burnt out at times, um, it's certainly a big job. But um, my question is around um, transparency being a great thing. Um, but we also know from research uh, that facts don't change minds. Um, should we learn from the power brokers and form up more citizen-led lobby groups such as um, GetUp or, or others to rebalance because it's certainly not an even playing field. Oh, no, it's not a um, it's not an even playing field, that's for sure. Um, so, I mean, I think there's lots of activism. I think there's lots of ways of doing activism. One of the things I worry about with young people is they think that clicktivism and being on social media kind of brings about change and so they're all shocked after Brexit and, you know, when, when their voices kind of weren't counted. Um, so I think we need to mobilise people to be interested, to be on the roll, to be on the roll to vote before it closes. Um, I can understand why you get worn out. You have to be resilient in the, <laughs> the change business. I think about, you know, Matt Condon, who's a, um, an, a journalist in residence at, at Griffith now, and, you know, about that extraordinary activism that eventually changed things here. You've got to be a bloody stayer, that's for sure. Um, so how do we get more people? How can the load be shared and what would be the platforms? You can, ex you can see the extraordinary uh, attacks on GetUp. I 
I heard the, the young guy who's the CEO this morning, uh, you know, being kind of quizzed, quizzed about it and carefully saying, listen, you know, the Electoral Commission has investigated us and whatever, so you risk becoming a target, of course, too. Um, so how do you do those things? I don't know. People are just going to have to experiment and they're going to have to do it around the issues that they really care about. And if I think, you know, if you, what's the best, most positive example that we've had of kind of citizen-led um, reform is the amazing coalition that was developed around the NDIS about that that campaign. And I think this is why people are so frustrated about the implementation of NDIS, even though it's impossible to implement such an ambitious thing. And we need to be patient because it's bloody hard and no one's tried to do it anywhere in the world. But I think it was people's commitment to that, of the idea of it and the promise of it, is why they're so frustrated. So, so what was it about that that galvanised a whole bunch of people to action? It was fair. It was right. It was the right thing to do. So how do we, you know, what can we learn from those things, I guess, would be what I'd be interested. Um, and there are, you know, there are all sorts of weird alliances going on in that uh, in that one. Yeah, it seems a bit glib to, to say it, but to reiterate something you said before about showing up, um, it can, you know, burnout is a big part of it and in, in all this kind of stuff. But uh, I think, you know, uh, Marcia Langton delivered a speech recently about her history in Indigenous affairs, but Australian kind of public space more broadly. And she spoke about very early on reading book and being told about the importance of showing up. And it's the people that show up that end up leading the world and, and doing all these things. And obviously there's a lot of other uh, connections to that about, you know, wealth and society and how all of, it, how all of that is connected. But I think, um, you know, even through my short kind of history in some of these things, unless we show up, unless we're having those conversations, then, um, no, you know, sometimes no one else is there to have them, no one else is there to drive that forward. So I think it will be something that's messy and worked out over time, um, but it depends sometimes on being able to achieve that kind of mass of movement and being able to show up and being able to support one another in those spaces too. Um, even on the, you know, about the space of ideas within universities. Um, you know, I'm teaching three courses sessionally <laughs> at the moment as well as my full-time job. Um, so it can be, you know, where ideas are had and being able to share that and have conversations like these to be able to spread those. So showing up and doing those kinds of things. Um, you know, even going back to the universal basic income, I think I'm hearing it more and more and more, and I think it's being, you know, talked about more that hopefully will achieve some kind of mass. You know, hopefully it won't just be kind of incorporated and assimilated into something different to, to what it should be. But there is that kind of idea about just having to show up and have those conversations. And sometimes, unfortunately, the way it works, that other, you know, particular people have to bear that burden to be able to do that and to start those movements. The conversation um, has grown into one of Australia's biggest independent news and research sites and that's actually extraordinarily quickly um, since we launched in 2011. Uh, we are a not-for-profit though and our funding is limited so we rely on reader support to keep going. A couple of weeks from now we're going to be launching our annual donation reader donation drive. Once a year we say we put our hands out and say if you like what we're doing please support us. You don't have to. We're very committed to keeping everything we do free because we that that's incredibly important without paywalls if you do like what we do if you like the sort of event you've come to tonight please do consider supporting us last year reader donations actually funded seven of our editors jobs and we're a small not-for-profit that makes a huge huge difference um, but thank you again to Anne and Eddie in particular but also our friends at Avid, Griffith Uni, MUP and most of all to all of you for showing up. That was Indigenous academic lawyer Eddie Sinnott and political scientist Anne Tiernan speaking with Liz Minchin at the launch of the Conversations Book of Essays, Advancing Australia. Tonight's episode was recorded by Michael Adams from Griffith University at Avid Reader Bookshop in Brisbane. Trust Me, I'm an Expert is a podcast from The Conversation and I really do hope you hit that subscribe button in your podcast app. We're out every other week with fresh analysis and stories from the world of academic research. My name again is Sananda Cray. Our theme beats are by Uncle Ho from Elephant Tracks. And you can see a full list of credits on our website at theconversation.com.